Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. For many children, gender shows up in prominent ways in their lives, literally from birth. It might determine what clothes they're expected to wear, what toys people buy them, and even what sports teams they play for. But it can also show up in more subtle ways. One study was conducted by a team of researchers that included Dr. Christia Spears-Brown. She's professor of developmental psychology, and the study explored how boys are encouraged to enjoy STEM fields. The study looked at how parents use numbered phrases with their children. Statements like, look for crayons, and you have two shoes. It found that parents of two-year-old sons use these number words three times more often than parents of daughters of the same age. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're taking a look at how children understand gender and stereotypes. Coming up, we'll talk to Professor Christia Spears-Brown about the development of biases and what parents can do about it. But when our first guest grew up in Bloomfield, Connecticut, it wasn't easy to find peers who were openly gay. She now writes about queerness, among many other topics. Catherine Von Stockton is Dean of the School for Cultural and Social Transformation and Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Utah. Her books include The Queer Child and most recently, Genders. Catherine, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into the theory and the books and the scholarship, I want to start with the personal because you grew up here in Connecticut, you're now in Utah, and you talk about some of your own experiences growing up as a queer child in this state. Were there particular moments that you felt othered or you felt like there was this difference that maybe was not honored in the same way? Two things were really confusing to me, really, from my earliest consciousness. And that was, for whatever reason, I felt sort of drawn to girls, you know, in a really in a sense of attraction, kind of a heightened sense with girls that I found appealing. And I absolutely felt myself to be a boy. Now, I'm not entirely sure all of what that means, but those were two things that I felt to be quite profoundly true for what I felt. And that made me feel uh, alone in the world, um, sort of scared and fearful for where this would lead. So even in moments that were exciting and happy and joyful, where I was sometimes getting to act out uh, these wishes, I couldn't quite see where that could go as a future. Even in childhood, I, I feared what I felt. I'm thinking about you talking about this experience, this fear of even in moments of joy, even in moments where you were free to just be yourself, there was still this nagging fear of what this could mean. And I'm thinking about where we are now in 2022, where people are just starting to get the language and understand this in a way that I imagine when you were growing up in Connecticut was not sort of that kind of common understanding, even with all of the continued tension 
that we face now. I'm thinking of the recent controversy in Connecticut where an English teacher wanted to provide a worksheet about inclusive language Uh so that students would feel seen and at Uh least have a common baseline and all of the uproar of that. How do you think that the context of the time that you were growing up in Connecticut shaped that kind of fear and uncertainty and really that hesitancy that you felt? Yeah. So I think, you know, in that time period, nobody really had words in my world to be able to sort of understand what I was saying about myself. There was the concept of tomboy. Thank goodness for that. So that sort of held me in a particular way. And for me, I always say there was a split temporality. I had to be a girl by day, but could be a boy by night. And even at school on recess, I could be a boy of sorts, but a boy in a dress. So in my time period, really by dictate, you had to wear girls clothes to school. So even though at night I could run home, throw off my jumper and play in boy clothes and play with boys, it was literally a strange thing to have to be one thing by day and another thing by night. Now, I think many folks know this. I think many folks of color know this. I think labor can make our day very different than our night, um, the way race operates. So this is not something that is solely tagged to gender. And what I would say now is we we do have new language and the general public is sort of finding out different ways to think and talk about things. But wow, how quickly the backlash has come. The other thing that I think about with identity, you know, I always say identity is fluid, it's contextual, it's structured mm-hmm. in many ways by forces that are beyond our self-identity and connect to that social identity. And one of those layers of context that I think is so key is about neighborhood and community dynamics. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not just that you grew up in Connecticut, you grew up in Bloomfield that many people think of as this really diverse place mm-hmm. in Connecticut mm-hmm. then and now. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, issues of race and class and mm-hmm. occupation alongside gender and identity. How did that context of growing up in Bloomfield, going to school in those formative years, how did that also play into your experience? Yeah, I say thank God for Bloomfield. I honestly believe like Bloomfield saved me in some very uh, interesting sets of ways, because even in that particular time period, so I'm growing up, I'm born in 1958, so going to school sort of in the 60s, but to be in a town where you could see that people had moved to that town with intent to find a place where communities could develop, you know, Jewish folks, Catholic folks, Black folks, That was something that I could see in my school system. Now, in my neighborhood, of course, there can still be tremendous segregation, right? Even in very diverse towns. I remember maybe one Black family uh, on our street. My neighborhood was mostly folks who were Catholic and Jewish, and then my family was Unitarian, and I couldn't for the life of me understand what a Unitarian was. (laughs) But it was very formative, right, to be with Catholic kids and Jewish kids because that also formed my sense of possibility. So I think we really underestimate how profound it can be for children to be in school systems and to be learning from kids of different sorts. And of course, kind of a long story, but what happened in Bloomfield was, I think there were maybe five elementary schools. One elementary school to begin with had, you know, a wonderful population of black children. But that school, maybe because of the physical condition of the school, but probably because of the way people thought about busing, right? That school was shut down and Black kids were fanned out to these other very white elementary schools. 
And I remember kind of a joyous moment, but a moment of confusion and not knowing what to do when all of a sudden, you know, a group of black kids showed up in my elementary school. And that was also a scene of possibility, but also confusion. I had to learn that what I thought was my loneliness that I kept projecting onto kids coming from a different place, that those projections that I had of myself as a white queer kid did not fit uh, the the other new kids that I was seeing, right? So it was like a moment of, you know, intersectionality in childhood, like, oh, this sort of sense of like, my problem is your problem. It's like, no, that's not really fitting. So that was profound too. And it's profound to think about all of the ways that children navigate these sort of conflicting messages, this search for solidarity and this search to be seen to at its at basic level to be seen. And mm-hmm. even in those spaces where it could be conducive to that, also mm-hmm. honoring that our experiences may have similarities, but they're different. And how do we work through that? And I, I think of my own experience as a black child bust from mm-hmm. predominantly black neighborhood to an all yeah. white, very affluent space yeah. and wondering where do I fit? Yeah. One of the other things that you mentioned was about your neighborhood and mm-hmm. the possibilities you saw growing up around Jewish kids and Catholic mm-hmm. kids. And you talk mm-hmm. about religion, this sort of mm-hmm. search for religion as a space and a connection in your own life as a teenager and wanting to become a born again Christian. How does a kid, queer kid raised in Bloomfield in a Unitarian family then go on a journey to become a born again Christian. Oh, and you know, I'm sure my beautiful, lovely parents were asking that very question. Actually, as really great Unitarians, they were remarkably open to this experiment in a way that I think most parents might not be down for, you know. And the one line they drew, because I wanted to go to Catholic school, because I had this notion that then I would get to wear one of those little suits and a shirt and a tie, Pretty which nice. of course would, yeah, would not have happened. So my parents sort of felt like, no, we are not paying for you to go to Catholic school, you know, when we're Unitarian. But yeah, for me, I honestly think that moment of becoming born again was this moment of tremendous possibility. Most people are surprised to hear that that could be true for a queer kid. But I think what I was navigating was needing some sort of feedback loop to tell myself I'm good, right? So much in the world was saying that homosexuals were evil. I mean, Surely by the time I'm 13, I've heard that a thousand times over, right? So I think in a weird way, this idea of, you know, accepting Jesus as my savior was a way of thinking that must mean there can be some goodness for me. There's some possibility to be seen as good in this world. Other factor I would say is the girl who was converting me, I found to be one of the most appealing human beings in the whole world. I mean, not only was she exceedingly beautiful, but she also had a beautiful mind. She was kind. She was musical. She was smart. She was intellectual. Sort of all these things as a child I was drawn to. So there began a moment of possibility. Last thing I'll say is that evangelicals, of course, are very tied, were in that time, to sex segregation. So girls go with girls. Boys go off with boys. In this very funny way, because I was hailed as a girl, I got to go off and be with the girls. And spirituality is a type of romancing, right, that you do with other people. So I found the possibility of romance with girls through these deep-seated, very genuine spiritual connections. As someone who was in many ways forced to move 
across these spaces, not based on your own sort of wanting to be classified in this way or to be seen in this way in a space, but really forced to do that, as you mentioned. How do you navigate through the very different kinds of stereotypes, social norms, conditioned ways that all of us are socialized to think about girls or think about boys in these spaces? Were you able to sort of exist above that? Or was it, if I'm in this space with boys, I'm adopting some of the same norms, attitudes, and behaviors, quote unquote, as girls would do or as boys would do. What was that like for you? For me, it has been an animating question because I don't know, did I just sort of wish to move as a boy, right? In my time period, movement was so constricted for girls. Nonetheless, there's the question of privilege, right? Being a white child, was I perceiving that, wow, there are privileges that come with white boyhood. And of course, I was not saying the word white to myself because I I feel like the things that boys and girls were always talked about as if they had no racialized histories and every boy and girl has a racialized history. So that was something that was never being confessed, but was I perceiving it as a child? So was it privilege that I wanted in some way? And finally, for reasons I know not why, I love the idea of what I call boy surface. I love the way the boys looked and the way they dressed and the way they moved. And I wanted to inhabit that. But of course, I love so many things about girls. And I will say that by having to sort of be a girl, be told I am a girl, be with the girls, wow, did I learn to admire girls. I just began to think like girls are matchless who has kept a secret from me. When I had only played with boys, I had a type of boy misogyny, right, that I applied to girls. So many things that boys said about girls and thought about girls, I thought those things too, either to blend in or because I believed them. Once I started spending time with girls, it was just like, girls are amazing. (laughs) When we return, Kathleen talks about her book, The Queer Child, She also explains the historical context of our modern idea of childhood. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're talking about children and what the research tells us about their understanding of gender and stereotypes. Before the break, we heard from Professor Catherine Bond Stockton about her time growing up in Bloomfield, Connecticut as a queer child. 
In her 2009 book, The Queer Child, Catherine examines children's identity formation and what she sees as a pervasive sense of strangeness for all of us. I wanted to know more about the label queer. In full disclosure, when I grew up, the word was considered a slur. And so I asked Catherine what the word means for her now. So as an English professor, I always go to the dictionary just to see what the dictionary is going to say. And the dictionary sort of makes sense out of it. Now, the dictionary I first consulted was kind of old, and it said derisive slang for homosexual. Certainly true, right? For a long time, the word queer was not a word that, that gay folks would use of themselves. So there's that, LGBTQ, essentially, right? But the other word is very broad, and it simply means strange. And that's the part of queer that I'm always interested to animate, which is to say, instead of saying, you know, we gay people, we trans people, you know, we are just as normal as you are, right? Kind of asking, begging for our rights, showing that we are so much like you, whoever you may be in power, right, that will grant us those rights. I think we like to flip that on its head and say, it's not that I'm as good and as normal as you are, it's that you are queer, whoever you may be, that there's such a strangeness to anybody's gender, right? To anybody's wish to be sexually drawn to this person rather than to that person. It's really impossible for us to get to the bottom of our own selves, never mind for anybody else. Talk to us more than when you use this phrase, gender is queer for everyone, because it seems connected to that definition of the strangeness of what it means for people that's so much more than just clothing or just or more than just a hobby or presentation. What do you mean by that phrase? Yeah, if you really even just think about it, when the baby comes out of the birth canal, right, still generally sexed as boy or girl. And I say in the book, you know, it's almost strange. It's almost like we take a sword and cut babies in half, right? Now you can only be this part, this half of human being that is the opposite of this half of human being. And of course, that's why we supposedly say it's natural, right, for this half to seek that half. But I mean, what a strange thing to do to a baby at birth before that child can even speak, can even tell us who it thinks it may be, to gravitate towards this word, towards that word. We have lowered a cone over that child. I mean, I say this gently to parents, you know, it is done generally by everybody. So this is not a, a critique or a judgment, you know, of individuals, but just a strange thing that we do. And then I find it very strange that we then raise people to believe they're somehow highly different, two different types of human beings, right? Again, almost opposite. And then we ask these opposites to come together and raise other little opposites, you know, and we call that marriage as it was intended to be. While we can agree that the word queer represents sort of the strangeness of categories for all of us, not mm -hmm. just a singular one, mm -hmm. you also point out that the way we use the word child is strange in some ways, that sort of demarcation mm -hmm. in expectation. Mm -hmm. What is it about the word child that evokes that kind of response? Yes. And, you know, for listeners, it might be surprising to think that our concept of the child is really quite recent historically. Recent meaning going back to the end of the 17th century. So if you call that recent, but nonetheless, and so many things historically had to happen 
to have the sort of category of childhood that we have now. So say in U.S. culture, right, where legally you are a child until the age of 18, let's say, you know, that's a very recent development because various things had to happen to make the child thus. So let me just sort of, I'll just mention four and then we can talk about any of them. But obviously the move to abolish child labor, right? You can't have this long delayed childhood if children are working. So by actually these laws to abolish child labor starting right around 1901 in the United States, but really takes until about like 1938 to really take force, that's important. The development of juvenile justice that makes the child a different legal creature than adults, very important. Some would say Freud, writing at the end of the 19th century into the 20th, of imagining that the child is a sexual creature, right, creates another idea, because then the question is, do we need to protect the child from its own sexuality? And the fourth thing I'll mention is sort of the concept of homosexuality. Again, could be surprising to a listener. We don't really have that concept consolidated until around 1891. So before that time, right, men may have sex acts with men, women may have sex acts with women, but they're not known as a kind of identity of the homosexual. So those four things change the very notion of childhood. It's almost like somebody flips a switch at the beginning of the 20th century, those four things happen, and now kind of a new concept of the child. All four of those areas suggest that there are people who benefit from those classifications, <laughs> right? There are those Absolutely. who are in positions of power to impose and reinforce and reify those yes. distinctions. And that means that it, again, taps into all of those other layers of identity that you mentioned before when we're talking about that. And so when we think about where we are now, right, we are approaching a midterm election series that is seeing in many states efforts to not just define children, but to harm children based on their identity, based on who they are, based on their desire to have a healthy sense of self. With all of that that's happening, when you hear this title, The Queer Child, some people may automatically assume that you are talking about one group of children or yes. one particular identity, but you're also right. talking about it more broadly. Let's get into the book and explain to our listeners what you mm -hmm. mean, not just by the title, but by the mm -hmm. substance of this work. Mm -hmm. One of the things I try to say is throughout the length of the 20th century, maybe still for some people, you literally couldn't have the category the gay child in the present tense. In fact, you would hear parents say something like, I'm afraid my child may grow up to be a homosexual or a gay person. But to imagine the gay child in the present tense was almost impossible for people because that would make it sound like the child is sexual. And generally, U.S. culture does not believe children are sexual. Therefore, you cannot have a gay child, even though all the while we're presuming every child to be straight. <laughs> so there's a really interesting contradiction there. And for those of us who heard that word in childhood, gay, and felt like, uh-oh, uh-oh, that's me, right? In a way, we could never be a gay child. I could not come out to anybody in my whole world, not my incredibly loving, embracing Unitarian parents for fear of breaking their hearts, certainly not to any childhood friend. I thought I'd be bullied and bashed if I did. So I held on to that. In a sense, you could say I've only become a gay child retrospectively. 
you know, when I finally came out, then I could say I was a gay child. But until just recently, that's been the only grammatical formulation allowed to gay children. So you came out later in life, not as a, you know, a younger person or a child. Yes. Do you feel like things started to make sense for you more in terms of experiences, that feeling, that fear of even in these moments of freedom, I still have this kind of fear and reservation coming out, having this opportunity to be reflective about your experiences. Did that help the pieces fit? Or perhaps was there sense of resentment of I actually didn't have the opportunity to be myself because of all of these social constraints, even from well-meaning people who loved you, but lacked the language and understanding. Yeah, you know, I've often wondered whether I would have more resentment now. I think it was just such a miracle to think because, I, you know, in childhood, I thought I will never be loved by anybody. I will never get married. I will have to be celibate. So to imagine that there could be a girl who would love me back, that was just like a world making possibility. Um, so I think it was maybe just more joyful and more miraculous when I could finally come out. Because really in childhood, and this was my time period, and might be surprising to listeners, I mean, I never knew another live human being who in front of me said, I'm gay, until I went to Yale Divinity School. I mean, think about that. You just don't see a live referent for yourself. Nobody's on TV. Nobody's in the movies. It's like I know another group of people called gay people exist somewhere in this world, somewhere on this planet, but I have not met them. So going to divinity school and meeting gay people, you know, people who implied they were gay, didn't say it, but implied it, that was stunning to me. So it was not so much resentment as um, astonishment. It's also astonishing to think that the first space where you could be around people who were in sort of a shared sense of where you were, but also what was possible was in divinity school mm -hmm. and in divinity mm -hmm. school at mm -hmm. Yale. Yes. All of the layers, right, that come along with divinity school, come along with Yale, all of those different things and the possibilities. And I'm curious, there will be some people who will listen to this who may be parents or, you know, uncles or people who are just in the lives of young people and want to be supportive, want to be encouraging, want to be a source of affirmation for those young people, but they're just not sure what to do or mm -hmm. where to start. Or maybe they have their mm -hmm. own sort of, you know, mm -hmm. reflections that need to happen. What mm -hmm. would you say to people as sort of here are two or three ways that we can come together in our understanding and affirm people so that these children, these young people don't experience that same level of isolation? Mm -hmm. Well, I love that question. I would say, listen, listen, talk, but listen, listen five times more than talking. Um, I, cause I think talking to people that they may know who may be kids, right. Who may be teens, who may be adults who have lived these lives, talk and, and find out, get educated. And so of course getting educated means reading. So only again, listening if people wish to speak, right? Not looking for somebody to educate you. Um, you go to get educated, you do that work. You go and you read books that will bring new ideas to the surface for you. 
And I'd say the last thing is, you know, I've found that sometimes when parents come to me and they want to be very supportive of, of what's going on with their kid, but they'll say that they're heartbroken, you know, because this person that they thought, for example, was their daughter is saying that they're their son and they don't know what to do. And sometimes I say to parents, you can feel free to grieve with me. I'm a safe space for your grieving because in part, what you're saying is you love this body that you knew in this formation, this, what had been a girl surface to you. You love that. You attach to that. I get that. But now use your attachment to that surface as a key for what your child is telling you, why this surface change that they're making is so important to them. In other words, the depth of your heartbreak over seeing that particular surface change and go away is the key index to understanding how deep it runs for this human being to be able to appear and present in the way that they wish to. And I have found that argument, that third argument over and over hits deeply with people who are people of goodwill. And I think, you know, I'd love to educate people who are not people of goodwill that's a that's a harder push. That's another right? another journey, right? That's another layer. And you know, the I guess the last thing I would say too is just to say to folks, it's so interesting. It should be a key to us that this cultural and insecure need that we have to fortify sex with gender at every turn, right? Is kind of an indication that we ourselves must feel it's not so natural. If it were so natural and we just believe it will always unnaturally, it will always naturally unfold then we don't have to worry about it. But all of this backlash seems to be a deep indication that we understand that it is very changeable. It must not be so natural to appear just in this form and that form. And hence all the heavy regulation, the wanting to turn back the clock. I think that's interesting. I appreciate you for the work that you're doing to affirm the importance of listening and learning and approaching that listening and learning, not as the labor that the person we want to learn from has to do, but the humility that it takes for us to come yeah. forth and ask the question. Catherine Bond Stockton is Dean of the School for Cultural and Social Transformation and Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Utah. She's author of The Queer Child, and her most recent book is Genders. Thank you so much. Oh, such a pleasure to be with you. Coming up, how can parents avoid imparting their biases on their children? This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Christia Spears Brown is Professor of Developmental Psychology and Associate Dean of Inclusive Excellence at the University of Kentucky. Her research shows that children as young as five will say that a girl who's dressed in skimpy clothing, jewelry, and makeup is popular, but not smart. That's compared with a girl who's dressed in a blouse and jeans. Her research also shows that middle school boys describe a hypothetical popular boy as being a player. Her most recent book is Unraveling Bias, how prejudice has shaped children for generations and why it's time to break the cycle. She argues that these stereotypes contribute to the prevalence of sexual harassment, even in young children's lives. She joins us now to talk about what parents and others can do to keep children from being harmed by these stereotypes. Christia, welcome to Disrupted. 
Oh, thanks for having me. This is a book about children and stereotypes. And I think a lot of people might be surprised because we have this popular notion that children are immune to stereotypes, the kinds of things that we see as hangups for adults. But you argue that this can actually happen very early on in their development and their socialization. How early do children start to develop these stereotypes? Well, I mean, it happens gradually, but they start paying attention to things like race and gender when they're infants. So before their first year, they're starting to put people into categories and start to pay attention to what looks like typical members of groups. By the time they're about three, they start to believe in gender stereotypes. So who is strong? Who cries a lot? Who is gentle? By the time they're about five, you really start to see that they are believing and have a lot of knowledge of racial stereotypes. And so by the time they start elementary school, they are understanding groups, they understand what groups they're in, and they have a whole host of stereotypes associated with those groups. What I'm hearing from you too is that it happens in a cumulative way it's a more subtle way than I think most people assume. I think a lot of people assume stereotypes, acquisition, belief is something that you are explicitly told. But what I'm hearing from you is that it can be the result of observation and interaction, all things that are so key to a child's development. What role do parents then play in this if it is a constant sort of exposure and development over time? What's the role of parents? Well, I think parents play an important role, but they have to step up to that role. So one of the reasons that it is so pervasive, why most kids are you know, showing stereotypes, is that they are paying attention to the patterns they see. They're paying attention to the media. They're paying attention to all those images out there. And parents aren't talking about them. So parents are often assuming that kids that are three, four, and five years old are colorblind. The number of times we're told, oh, kids are colorblind. Um, Or no, kids, you know, we have girl power stuff. So whatever it is, parents kind of assume that their kids are not paying attention or are doing it in ways that are positive. And so one of the things we always encourage parents is have those conversations, talk about what it is you see. For example, if we talk about race, kids are not colorblind, right? We come in different shades. (laughs) Um, Of course, we notice it. And we live in a biased world, so kids are going to notice biased patterns, just like they learn grammar, right? Kids learn grammar, and no one ever had to sit down and say, first you say a noun, and then you say a verb. Stereotypes and prejudice are the same way. And so race, we often don't talk about with little kids. Gender, we don't talk about in terms of stereotypes. And so what parents can do is start to talk about and give kids better explanations for what they're seeing. So talking about why we come in different shades, talking about the times we see things that look unfair. That's, I think, a big role of parents. I'm hearing you say that, you know, we don't often talk to kids about race and about these differences but I kind of feel like many adults don't talk to each other about this. And I'm thinking of the backlash when Crayola decided to do a box of crayons with different shades and parents and teachers were outraged by this for very different reasons. Some parents outraged, why do I need to talk to my kid about race and color and complexion? And teachers saying, because we see your kids every day who are curious and exploring, and we want to allow them to engage. And at the same time, I was sort of smiling as you talked about, you know, kids are colorblind. We've all seen those images where it's two kids of different 
presumably different racial groups playing together. And there's some caption, if we could just be like kids, not recognizing the ways that they could do that. What's the work then that parents can do so that they become more comfortable even having the discussion with their kids because it seems like this taboo that we don't talk about until something happens? I mean, I think parents have to work on where their own biases are. They have to get comfortable talking about it and kind of thinking about it themselves. I think for young kids, for, you know, kids from the beginning to, you know, like 10 or 11, there are great books out there that are for kids that talk about race in really beautiful ways, that talk about kids that are multi-ethnic, that talk about gender and gender diversity. And I think those are great tools for parents to sit and, hey, let's read this. And it it sets up a conversation that you may feel uncomfortable with. So I think if you're uncomfortable, have a book or watch a show, something that addresses these and use those as information starters. But I think also parents have to take some of the pressure off themselves. This isn't a matter of sitting down and let's have one big, long conversation about racial oppression. It needs to be the small little everyday conversations that we have, right? We don't teach our kids one day about how to be kind to others, right? We talk about that all the time, right? It's part of the daily parenting conversations. Things like stereotypes and biases should also be part of it. Whenever you notice something, it should be like the 30-second conversation, the one-minute conversation. If you're watching a show commenting, wow, it's really unfortunate that everyone on here is the exact same race as one another. They're all white. I wish we could see a lot more friends that look different from one another. That can be the conversation, right? So we have to like allow ourselves to have the small, low-stakes conversations with our kids and use the help that's out there to start those conversations. You know, parenting is hard. No matter how competent you think you are, no matter, you know, how committed you are to positive parenting, positive engagement, it's really difficult. But I'm also reminded of how much we sometimes think that we're teaching kids when the reality is often that they are teaching us about ourselves, about those around us, and about the ways the world is changing. I'll give you a quick example. A few years ago, my family's watching, I think like Wheel of Fortune or something. And a contestant says his name, his occupation, and says, and I want to acknowledge my husband who's in the audience. And I immediately said out loud, wow. And my kids said, you know, what's the big deal? And I said, that never would have happened when I was growing up. It's amazing that it took this long to get to this point, but isn't it great that we're here? And she just looked at me like, why is this a big deal? And it was this reminder that change can happen. I think that's a great point. And I think kids are not colorblind. Kids notice when there's two dads and two moms, they notice these things. It's only adults that put so much negative baggage on it. So if we go to where kids are and say, yeah, kids can take it as, oh, this is just the fact of life, right? If we talk about all the different shades we come in and how that makes things so much more interesting, all the different places we come from and how that's much more interesting. We got to acknowledge that kids are seeing it, but are not carrying the taboos that we bring to it. One of the other things that you mentioned in the book that was so insightful is that even when parents mean well, even when they think that they are pushing back against the dominant stereotypes and the dominant norms, it can often have the reverse effect because it's still centering gender as this sort of concrete structure for their children and for themselves. One of the examples that I think of here is we are inundated with elaborate gender reveal celebrations, right? Is it going to be boots or bows? Is it going to be layup or makeup? 
And so it's starting even before this kid has made their entrance into the world of sort of reinforcing that. How can parents create a more expansive room for children to develop and grow and form their own identities, even when we are very well-meaning? So this is a very research-driven kind of finding, too, is that when parents are using gender so much, so, I mean, the example I was using is even when they think they're doing these counter-stereotypical moments of, you're such a strong girl, you're such a sweet boy, look out what a caring boy you are. But what they've done is reinforced gender in every single sentence that they've said. <laughs> every time my parents are talking to me, I'm reminded of, you know, I'm a smart girl. Okay, girls, let's go get in the car. All of those cues, I better pay attention. And the more I pay attention, I notice a biased world. For parents, is important to taking it out of our language. So thinking about, do I need to reference someone's gender in this sentence? Is it relevant? Do I need to say, there's the mailman? That could just be the delivery person. Okay, kids, let's go get to the car. And it's tricky. Our language is pretty gendered, right? We have pronouns that are gendered. We have lots of things that are gender coded. There's research that shows the more parents do that, the more they label things pink and blue, use gender in their language, it literally increases kids' stereotypes in about a month. They endorse things like girls can't be president. <laughs> They're more likely to say that when they've been in a classroom, for example, that said, good morning, boys and girls, let's line up boy, girl, boy, girl, those kind of things. So it's a pretty compelling evidence that the more that we try to emphasize these binary genders, the more kids form stereotypes about them. And then the problem is the kids that don't fit neatly into those stereotypes feel othered and wrong and as though they're not kind of fitting in. And so it's, it's making stereotypes worse for kind of the more traditional kids, but it's also excluding the kids that don't feel like either of those are good descriptions for them. I'm thinking here of the power of media, not just social media, but the images that children are exposed to, the roles that children are exposed to in quote unquote kid shows and how it reinforces these stereotypes so that even if in your household you're trying to counter some of that or allow for a more freely forming notion of identity that's not constantly reinforced, when you look at some of the most popular kids shows, those stereotypes are there. What's the impact of that form of socialization in terms of media on children and their development? I think that's the thing that's the most untalked about. I think people often want to talk about parents, but I think parents' big role is the gatekeepers to all the other stuff. So I think media, as we know, is really impactful in things like in shows targeting young kids, especially kind of the under 10 set. Most shows have girls who are very thin, you know, often white, doing stereotypical behaviors like paying attention to how they look very appearance-based behaviors. The boys are typically brave and active and often in charge. Um, and the girl is more often like the sidekick. You don't often see boys crying and showing kind of empathy. And so those really subtle cues, um, often the lack of what we are seeing Kids are paying attention to those, and we know that that is making kids' stereotypes stronger. 
And that's the TV that, you know, is supposed to be good for kids. I always tell parents, everything is educational. I think parents like to think, well, this show is just for fun. And this is the educational, or this is the educational toy. And this is just for fun. For a kid, everything is educational. They're learning from everything that they see. And so we have to kind of look at everything they consume with that same critical eye. One of the challenges of being an academic is that our scholarship becomes such a part of how we are beyond our profession, right? I'm a political scientist. Everything is political to me. I'm always thinking about the context, the impact of a policy, how this fits in ways that most people are like, that has nothing to do. But I'm curious about your work and whether this research has affected your parenting or affected the ways that you navigate through the world that those who may not be as versed in this field may just sort of see as something else. So has this had any impact on you? Definitely. You know, I was doing this research and a developmental psychologist, you know, developmental psychology professor before I was a parent. And since then, I've had two kids that are midways <laughs> through being raised. And I very much did these things. Um, so I did not say, come on, girls, let's do this. You know, when I'm reading books, you know, my oldest liked the book, uh, the Curious George books. And in them, uh, there's a character that just is named the man with the yellow hat. And I would just rename it the friend with the yellow hat <laughs> um, and would re and would take it out of the language even when I read and made sure that I wasn't buying constantly gendered things. I was just very aware of just because someone gave us a toy doesn't mean I'm going to take that toy into my house. We gave a lot of birthday presents away um, to others because I thought kids are learning from these. And so, you know, Barbie dolls, <laughs> um, I have to say we didn't have because they're a little bit better now, but body image, there's research that shows girls that were playing with Barbie dolls had felt worse about their bodies afterwards than girls that were playing with other kinds of dolls. And so it's hard for me to like give my kids something that I know is associated with negative outcomes in the same way that I'm not going to give them food that's unhealthy that I know will make them sick. I can't, you know, it's, you can't, you're right. You can't turn it off just because you're not in a classroom or a research lab. There will be some people who will listen to our conversation and think, look, people are just too sensitive, right? I turned out fine. I had these things and I was okay. But Christy, I wonder if you would agree that we can never really be too sensitive when we're talking about kids' social, emotional wellness, their development, and the kind of healthy context, because Again, not only is it about the children that we're thinking of, it's also about ourselves and each other. So how do you respond when people say this is too much, just let kids be kids? I think we've had a long history of letting kids be kids. And we know that the rate of depression among teens, I think 44% of teens report that they're depressed. We know that stereotypes play out as kids get older. We know that women have really high rates of body image problems and concerns. They have really high rates of depression. We know that if you're um, straight and, you know, a woman, cisgendered woman married to a cisgendered man, oftentimes conflict comes up because you're really different in how you talk about emotions. <laughs> Women have been trained because of our socialization to talk about our feelings, to think about our feelings. Men have been taught to not do that. Um, so maybe it would be nice actually if we could have kind of talk the same language more frequently. 
You know, we see high rates of men, particularly black men, imprisoned because we have stereotypes that keep getting perpetuated. So maybe we have some problems that maybe we didn't all turn out just fine. <laughs> like maybe as an individual, we feel like we turned out fine. But if you look at society, I would say we have some disparities that we could probably take a stab at changing. You've helped us understand how these sort of norms are developed and accumulated over time. But one of the other things that I read in your book is that there's an opportunity to disrupt that, that we shouldn't just accept it as a fait accompli, that once people have been exposed to these ideas, they can never change, or that we as parents, as adults, can't make some sort of intervention. What would you say are two key takeaways that you would offer to people who want to be better about this, but may not be sure where to start or how to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just being willing to kind of mess up a little bit. I think being willing to hold ourselves accountable and to say, you know, I'm a good person, but I've been raised with misguided ideas about what people are like. And that's that kind of honesty, it doesn't feel great, but we have to just kind of sit in that and think about how can I look at the world differently? How can I approach people differently? And so part of it's just a real reckoning with ourselves. Um, And then to say, I'm just going to start trying. So I'm going to read different kinds of books. I'm going to see different kinds of movies. I'm going to interact in different spaces that I've not been in. Let me embrace diversity broadly defined of thought and of people and change the input. So let me change what we're around, what our experiences are. Let's get okay with uncomfort. Part of all of the why these biases just perpetuate is we are uncomfortable with things that are different than us. And so we just got to kind of sit in that discomfort of, I'm going to sit around people that aren't like me, and I'm going to get kind of used to it and think about how we have similarities and differences. And I think part of it is just starting. And then saying, I'm going to mess up sometimes, and I'm going to just try to show myself some grace, show others some grace. And I think you can model that with your kids and have those conversations with your kids. Like, we're going to try to think a little bit differently. So let's do it together. And so it's going to take work. You know, we can do it, but it, it, will, it will take putting energy in. And it's like a daily practice. I love that you say, just keep trying. Start where you are and just keep trying. Christia Spears-Brown is Professor of Developmental Psychology and Associate Dean of Inclusive Excellence at the University of Kentucky. Her most recent book is Unraveling Bias, How Prejudice Has Shaped Children for Generations and Why It's Time to Break the Cycle. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.